God's Word makes it clear that this is not the case. And unfortunately, there are many, many people who think they will go to heaven for various reasons. They may go to church. They may give an offering. They may do good things to and for others. They may even try to be a really good person. But God's Word reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. I've said it many times throughout the years, if I were a multi-gazillionaire, I don't even know if that you know, is a word, but I kind of like to pretend it is. But if I had more money than you can possibly imagine, and I did everything in my understanding to do everything I could possibly do to make life better for someone else, I went to every far-reaching corner of the world and I built hospitals. And I gave money to come up with vaccinations. And I helped every poor person so that they could have a home and have clothes and have a car. And if I did everything I could possibly do in my might until I have not one red cent left, I've given away gazillions of dollars. But if I didn't know Jesus Christ is my Savior, God's Word still says that my eternity will be spent in hell. See, there's nothing I can do to change that other than to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And God's Word further states in John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus reminds us, He says, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, there is nothing anyone can do to save themselves. And furthermore, unless someone is born again or has a relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, heaven will never be their eternal home. The Bible speaks of two spiritual families. So just in a moment, we're going to get into what these two spiritual families are and what we need to understand to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. But before we do that, let's just look to the Lord in prayer once again. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you this morning, I ask God that you would work in our hearts. God, I just want to say thank you for sending your son to die on a cross, to pay a debt he didn't owe, because we had a debt we couldn't pay, as someone once said. God, we understand that there is nothing we could do or could ever do to save ourselves. We cannot be good enough. We cannot do enough good to earn our way to heaven. But God, because of what You did, because of Your love for mankind, You made a way. And God, as we're here this morning, under the influence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, I pray that You would speak to our hearts. And God, I pray, as it says in 2 Corinthians 6-2, that today is a day of salvation for those who may not know You. And God, I pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that it would be obvious that your Holy Spirit is leading. And we'll give you the praise and the glory, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God's Word reminds us that there are two spiritual families found in the Word of God. Um, The first family is the one into which you were born. And unfortunately, God's Word says it's the devil's family. So, well, what does well, what does that mean? Well, if you would this morning, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter eight. In John chapter eight, we'll read a couple of verses that will help us understand what he is referring to here. So, first of all, there is the devil's family. 
In John chapter 8 and verse 33, it says, We are descendants of Abraham. They answered him, And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? And Jesus responded, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are... Uh, trying to kill me because my word is not welcome among you. I speak that I have seen in the presence of the Father. Therefore, you do in what you have heard from me. And then you go down and says, Our father Abraham, they replied, If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would be do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing this what your father does. And then he begins to bring clarification. We weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one Father, God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would have loved me, because I came from God and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but He sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your Father, the devil, and you want to carry out your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has stood in this truth. Because there is no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. Because he is a liar and a father of liars. So the first family that God mentions here through Jesus Christ in John 8 is the family that is born of the father of the devil. That's the family that we're all born into. We are born with this sin nature and it's way back from the beginning. And there's not a thing that any of us can do to change that as, as we are coming through the womb and we are born of our mothers. We are born into sin. And Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that we're born into this family by physical birth. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says this. In which, and you were dead, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the Spirit now working in the disobedient, and we too all previous lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. We are born as children under wrath with an inclination, with an innate desire to do wrong. It's amazing as children grow, you don't have to teach them to do wrong. Now, Johnny, this is how you make your brother mad. You just start hitting him and take away his toys. We don't have to do that, do we? On the other hand, we do have to teach our kids to do what's right because our innate desire and what's innately within us as we're born is that we have a sinful fleshly nature. And it's a struggle throughout our entire life to surrender all that we are to who all that God wants us to be. We're born with it. He says, so were you in the past before Christ came. You were children of wrath. Why? Because we were born into the devil's family. And in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3, Adam was 130 years old when when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. In other words, we're born into the likeness of our earthly father. Sinner begets sinner, begets sinner, begets sinner, begets sinner throughout all eternity. We are born as sinners. And we're born as sinners because God's Word tells us that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. Wherefore, as in Romans 5 verse 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world. It goes on to say that we are all sinners. So we are born with the knowledge that in Adam we will all die, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22. We will all die. Why? Because we are born of our father the devil in an earthly fashion as sinners under judgment, born into wrath, and that's who we are. Until God does a work in our life. But you see, until God does that work, we are all destined to spend eternity in hell. And until God does that work in our life and draws us to Himself and we surrender our will to His and we place our faith and trust in Him and begin a relationship with Him, we are destined eternity to spend without Him. But I'm thankful that God did not leave it that way. Not only is there the devil's family, but the second spiritual family that we see in God's Word is the family of God. In fact, we see this in John chapter 1. Verses 12 and 13 is a very familiar verse. But in verse 12 it says, But to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to become the children of God. So now God begins to open up a second family, a spiritual family. A family that has the ability to be forever. To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So God introduces a Uh, A second family, a spiritual family, it's His family. And once again, we're born into this family through spiritual birth. In in an earthly family, we are born by fleshly birth. Um, In John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he talks about being born a second time. This is a spiritual birth that happens as a result of placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And guess what? Just as physically we are born in the likeness of our earthly father, it says that in John, or Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, that Adam's son was born in his likeness after his image. In the same way, God, when he saves us, allows us to be born in the likeness of his son. Where do we see that? In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, God had a purpose for you in eternity past that when you became a child of God, when you place your faith and trust in him, no longer are you like your earthly father. You were become like your heavenly father. We no longer live like we were before Christ. Everything changes after Christ comes into our life. He says, so you're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. We have a new image in Christ, born in the likeness of God's son. (coughs) And just as physically, as we're born into the devil's family, we are born with the knowledge that in Adam we will all die. 1 Corinthians 15:22, but born with the knowledge that we will live forever as part of God's family. And we see that in John chapter 3, verse 36. It says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. 
So he says right here, there's the contrast. There's a person who believes and he has eternal life, and there's a person who refuses to believe, he rejects God, and he does not have eternal life with God the Father. He'll spend eternity in hell. And there's no middle ground. There are some people who believe that there's a middle area, but God's Word does not talk about that at all. It's heaven or hell for all eternity. And God's Word is clear. So there is eternal life for those who place their faith and trust in Him. And in John chapter 6, verse 47, He says, I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. We have the freedom to believe and to have life eternal with God the Father. And as I said before, I wish everyone in this room were going to heaven. I wish I could just stand up and say, boy, you are saved, and you're saved, and you're saved, and have that freedom to just pronounce eternal life on all. But you know, no one can do that. It is a work that God does in our life to draw Him to Himself and a decision to make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, the one who has the Son has life. And the one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. And I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, this, this is a proof. This is a fact. I'm writing these things to you that believe so that you may not guess, not hope, not wish for, but that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm going to read this little illustration to you this morning to maybe kind of put this in perspective and maybe a way that we can understand this. The sickness and the cure. Someone once said, imagine that you are sick and dying. You have tried treatment after treatment and medication after medication, and after much frustration you come to the conclusion that nothing has worked and nothing will work. Your hope is lost. Maybe some of the treatment or medication made you feel better, but overall, nothing you tried brought you real healing. Then one day, you meet someone who understands exactly what you're facing. He knows what you've been through and exactly what you're facing. (coughs) He knows what medication you need, and he has the right medication. Best of all, this medication is guaranteed to solve your sickness, and it's free. This is great news. No doubt many people in their shoes, sharing the struggles, would do their best to set up a meeting to discuss this medication. Some people would inquire as to how and where they could get this medication. No doubt many people would be willing to sacrifice much financially. After all, doctor after doctor, treatment after treatment, medication after medication, did nothing to bring real healing. But in many regards, the scenario I just shared describes everyone in existence today. In fact, the scenario is described in great detail in the Word of God. Here's the scenario. Many people believe that there are many medications or roads, quote-unquote, used to cure their sin, sickness, and to take them to heaven. It's amazing how often I run into someone in the community... And we'll have a little conversation. They say, well, you know, you're a Baptist, you're a Catholic, you're a Lutheran, whatever. We all go in there. We just kind of go a different route. No, that's not the case. You see, I don't really care whether or not you're Baptist, Catholic, Lutheran. I mean, I do. But in the broad scheme of things, it's not about religion. It's not about denomination. It's all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And yes, I think there are detours that people take that lead them astray. But the real path is the one that Jesus Christ said. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So there are many people who believe that there are many medications or roads, quote-unquote, that will cure their sin sickness and get them to heaven. But the truth is that not all medications work. Like not all roads lead to heaven. Though certain things can make you feel good or better at times. You see, people try religion. And in trying religion, they might give an offering. They might show up to church. They might do good to people in need. They might try to be an overall good person. Those are medications that try to soothe the problem. But it doesn't take away the real issue. You see, going to church doesn't do anything if you're not a saved person. Going to church will help you grow. But until you know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with Him, these are just motions. We need Jesus Christ to be at the center of our hearts. Nicodemus, maybe like some of you are wondering, what does it mean to be born again? Um, how do I get born again? I mean, I think it's a fair question. Nicodemus had that question. In fact, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3 for a moment. John chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 8. Or verse 1 through 9. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And can I say this? As a Pharisee, he was religious. I'm sure he knew the law. He knew the book. But it wasn't enough. There are a lot of people who go to church. They've heard all the stories. But it's not enough. So here's a Pharisee named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, speaking to Jesus, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless they are born of the Spirit, he says, you can't go to heaven. Verse 4, but how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? I mean, that's a legitimate question. I mean, how, how does this happen? I mean, I mean, obviously he can't go up in there and come out again. How does that happen? And Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the first birth, the devil's family. And whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's the second birth, God's family. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. <clears throat> so there's this legitimate question. How does this happen? Well, I think we need to understand at least seven things relating to real salvation. So for a few moments, let's understand these things. Number one, you need to understand that the sickness that we all face is sin. 
We're born with it. And Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned. That means all. It means every one of us. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And it's an amazing thing. We'll say, well, what? I'm not that bad a person. I'm, I'm, I mean, overall, I'm a good person. It doesn't matter. God says that nothing can enter into heaven that will defile. In other words, heaven is a perfect place. Heaven is a glorious, righteous, holy place. And nothing can enter in that defiles. And because we have sinned, we are defiled. And so we need to understand that. There's not a one of us that's without sin here this morning. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, as I already stated, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All it took was one. And every generation, sinner begets sinner, begets sinner, begets sinner, begets sinner. And the bottom line is, we are born, and the sickness that we face is sin. Number two, we need to understand that our sin sickness separates us from God. Well, how do I know that? Well, Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. Revelation 21 and verse 27. It says, Nothing profane will ever enter it. Talking about heaven. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's why he said in John 3, 3, Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we are born not only as a sinner, but we are born with the possibility that we may never see heaven. Because the sin, sickness that we face separates us from a righteous and holy God. Number three, we need to understand that God through Jesus Christ completely paid the price for our sin. Isn't that awesome? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrated His love in us, or toward us, in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us so much that He provided a way. He paid the price. And I don't know who the original author was, but He paid a debt He didn't know because we had a debt we could not pay as we learn from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And then God's Word reminds us again in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the wages or the punishment or the due recompense for our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The bottom line is, he said the, the, the recompense or the, the reward for our sin is death. And what he's talking about there is a spiritual death, a separation for all eternity between us and God. And of course, that is in, heaven, in hell. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Isn't that awesome? I mean, think about that. He made a him to, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that he might become the, recon, the recompense of God in us. The bottom line is he became something for us, and as he did, died on that cross, God had to turn his back on him, and as he bore the sins of the world on his back, he did that out of a heart of love for you and I. We don't deserve it, but God is gracious and merciful. And He loves us that much. Number four. We need to understand that you can become a child of God and have a relationship with God the Father. 
Well, how does that work? Um, can I just say this in, in, in humility? I don't want to hurt anyone's, any, anyone's feeling, but I've heard different people over the last couple of years say, well, when did you become a child of God? Well, I always grew up in church. That's not being a child of God. Well, when, when did you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Well, you know, my parents were saved and they took us to church every week and I grew up in the church. Wonderful! But that doesn't make you a child of God. So, what is he talking about? Nicodemus being born a second time of the Spirit. What's that all about? And how do I become a child of God? Because I want to make sure that I spend eternity with God my Father. And I, and I, want to, I don't want to spend eternity in hell, but I want a relationship with Him. And, and I want God to do that work in my life. But how does that happen? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. They're familiar verses. We hear them often. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So what's he saying? I have to come to a realization as God's doing a work in my life, I confess that Jesus is exactly who He says He is. And He did exactly what He said He did. And I believe it. And I trust Him. And he goes on. says, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. And can I say this? As I said a couple weeks ago, there ought to be a time in our life where we can look back. I don't remember the exact date I gave my life to Christ. I don't remember the exact day as a five-year-old that Jesus Christ came into my heart and my life and saved me. But I remember there was a day I came home from church. I knelt down beside the couch right next to my, on a little coffee table right next to the end, edge of my couch. And I remember very distinctly as if it were five minutes ago. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come into my heart and my life and save me. I remember as if it happened yesterday. Every one of us who knows Jesus Christ as our Savior, you ought to be able to look back to a time in your life when God did a work in your life and He took you as a child of the devil and on your way to hell, and made you a child of God and put you on your en route to heaven. You ought to remember a time. Not just while I grew up in church. So he says, how does this happen? With the heart one believes, but with the mouth one confesses. And it comes to that place. And he says in verse 13, says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. There needs to be a point when God does that work in our life and He convicts us of our sin, where we acknowledge that we are sinners, that Christ paid the price for that sin, and then we call out and say, God, I confess my sin to You. You are exactly who You are. You, you, you did exactly what You said You did. And God, I call on You and I place my faith and trust in You. There ought to be that time when we come to that place where we respond to the Spirit's leading in our life. So we need to understand we can become a child of God and we can have a relationship with Him. Number five, you need to understand that God can forgive you of all your sin. Sometimes we have this idea that, well, no, I'm too bad a person. I, I mean, I, I know, how, God, how can God save me? I mean, how can, how can, I mean, after all I've done, how can God, why would God do that? I don't know, He's God. 
But my Bible tells me in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if you confess your sin, that's our responsibility. That's our challenge. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I love what it says in, in Psalm chapter 32, verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took away the guilt of my sins. When we confess our sins, the guilt is removed. Why? Because as far as the east is from the west, so far they removed our sins from us. What an awesome thought to think that regardless of what our past is, regardless of the, the darkness of our sin, God says, I can forgive if you will confess. That's our responsibility. Sometimes we hear this idea that, well, God, just, just trust God, He'll forgive you. No, you need to repent of it. It's not, you know, sometimes people are sorry they get caught for doing something. And it's the catalyst that gets them to change. But it's not just about being sorry for our sin. You see, repentance says, I'm going this way in life. And then I'm confronted with the fact that what I'm doing, where I'm going is wrong. It's sin before a holy God. And repenting is turning my back on it. And now I'm going this way in fellowship with God. It's not just being sorry I got caught. It's not just being sorry that someone found out about it. It's the idea that I acknowledge before God that He is holy and I am not and this is wrong and i got to change my back on it. I have to turn my back on it, change my direction and go a different way. That's repentance. And He reminds us in Proverbs 28 and verse 13. The one who conceals his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. We need to come to that place where we are confronted with our sin. When we realize that what we are doing is wrong, that it breaks the heart of God, it breaks fellowship with God, we need to confess it and forsake it. And he says, whoever tries to hide it, well, that's a task that will never happen. God's Word makes it clear in the Hebrews that all things are naked and open with God with whom we have to do. You can't hide it. Everything we do, we can hide it from our families, we can hide it from our friends, we can hide it from anyone around us, but you cannot hide it from God. So he says, he that hides it will not ever prosper. But he who confesses and renounces it will find mercy. That's our God. But our responsibility is that we have to acknowledge it. Number six, we need to understand that there is only one way to become a child of God. I didn't make the rules. It'd be interesting that if, well, you know, this guy's doing this, and this guy's doing this, and this guy's doing this, and one way. John chapter 14, verse 6 makes it clear. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes up unto the Father but by me. And I love how he illustrates this in John chapter 10. We've talked about this, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But in John chapter 10, he talks about this whole idea of the shepherd and the sheep relationship. And in biblical times, a sheepfold or where a pen where the sheep were put into, funneled into, was a, basically a stone wall. It was just so high, you know, just three or four foot tall, stone wall that would build up in kind of a mound, and it would go around the perimeter of the pasture except for one spot. You see, back in biblical days, they have chain-like fence with nice little open doors and gates with latches. There was an opening. That was where the shepherd slept. 
If a sheep was going to come into the pasture or out of the pasture, he had to go past the shepherd. The shepherd had to let him in. Isn't that an awesome analogy? And that's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. It must be through the shepherd, the great shepherd. And he lets you in on these terms. No other way. Acts 4.12 reminds us, Neither is there salvation in any other name, for there is only one name under heaven given by among men more why we must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. And as we do that, as we surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation through God, we need to understand that the peace, there is peace in becoming a child of God. We see that in two passages. Romans chapter 5. I'm almost there. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You want peace? It's in coming to Christ. But let me ask you this question. Is peace the absence of trouble? Is, is peace the absence of turmoil in, our, in a person's life? No. You see, God's Word makes it clear that we can have peace despite struggle. Why? Because this is temporary. All this is temporary. According to God's Word, and in several places, our true citizenship is in heaven as a child of God. So despite the trouble that we face in this life, the, the sinfulness of man, the, the circumstances on a political scheme, the, sick, the sicknesses and diseases that we face, it's all temporary. It's just a short time and then it passes. Because even if you live to be a hundred years old, you're still just a little speck on the timeline of eternity. This is temporary. You want peace? Don't look for it in this life. Real peace comes from walking with God. Because despite everything, because there's a different perspective, when we have peace with God, we can deal with everything else that goes on around us. Because we know it's not really here forever. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 kind of gives us another little perspective of it. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Don't care what the world does. Don't care what the world says. I have peace with my Father. So now we understand that we have a sin sickness that we're born with. And that God, through Christ Jesus, has provided the cure. Our sin debt or our sin sickness has been paid in full through Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. So imagine this. You're the one with this medical condition. You've just run into someone who can guarantee a complete recovery from the severe illness. What would you do? Would you wait until next year? Next week? Next month? You wouldn't wait another day if you knew that the cure was there. You wouldn't wait another minute if you knew that the cure was free. You see, one more thing about Romans 6.23 says, For the wages, the penalty, the punishment of sin is death. Eternal separation from God for all eternity. A spiritual death separated from God. But he says, But the gift of God is eternal life. 
Isn't it amazing that, you know, when you go to a birthday party, the gift that is given is free. You say, well, I have this pen, I want to give it to you. What do you have to do to take the gift? You have to reach out and take it. There's no strings attached. You don't have to, you see, a gift really isn't a gift if you have to work for it. If you have to do something to get it, it's not really a gift. I mean, it's, you've got to do something. See, the gift of eternal life, Jesus Christ always paid the price. It's a free gift. It's the cure for our sin sickness. And the question I have, what would you do if you knew that you had a cure, if you have not yet received it? Would you wait another day? Why would you want to wait another day? It's free. You just have to acknowledge it. I want to close the service just for a moment this morning by having Matt come up here and share what God did in his life in coming to Christ. Oops. If I can get off.